Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8, you'll find that on page 1007 in the church Bible. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it were, they desire a better country, That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Well, I wonder if you've ever stopped to consider the fact that there really are only three kinds of people in life. Every man, woman, and child can really fall under one of three categories. There are those people, and I think most of us fall in this first category, if we're honest with ourselves. There are those people who look expectantly into the future. They wonder what the future is going to hold. They wonder what's going to happen. We start doing this when we're children. We start wondering what will be in life, who will marry in life, what will happen to us, what our lives will be like, how long we'll live. We start wondering about all kinds of things. And then as we wonder, we start to think about positioning ourselves. We think about positioning ourselves so that we can achieve what we hope to get in life. And then some of us grow frustrated when we don't get what we want to get. And some of us trust in what we do get. And we find our deep satisfaction in things that we hope for, earthly things, status, success, maybe who we married in life. And so I think there's that first category of people, and I think almost everyone falls in there. Then there's another category of person, and this is the laid-back, easy-going, go-with-the-flow, fate will take me where it will, and it seems like such a great corrective. It seems like such a great corrective to the oftentimes frustrating and tense responses we have when we're trying to control the future of our lives. It seems like the right corrective. We just lay back and we let everything just carry us along, life just carrying us along like a river. I think that both are cheap imitations of what the Bible says we ought to be. And here in Hebrews 11, there's a third kind of person. And this is, this is the person who is trusting God by faith. This is the person that lives in light of the promises of God. They, they're told that their future holds for them glory and a world of Peace and joy and love and hope and rest and tranquility and security and everlasting joy with Jesus Christ. And then they embark on that by faith. They trust the God of faith. 
They hit the difficulties. They hit the trials. They don't see how it's going to happen. They don't let themselves be bogged down by the difficulties and the frustrations of lives. And they persevere in the face of all the challenges because they trust in the God who is promised and they trust that he is faithful. And that, my friends, is a description of the man or woman or boy or girl who lives by saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we have set out in Hebrews 11. We have it on one hand, and everybody mentioned in Hebrews 11, but we have it in a very specific sense with Abraham and with Sarah and with the patriarchs as they sojourned through the land, not knowing where they're going, the writer tells us. They went out. They didn't know where they were going. They hit challenges. One of the challenges was that Abraham and Sarah were way past the age of having a son, and all the promises of God relied on them having a child. The Redeemer would come from Abraham's son, Isaac. Christ would come. Everything was dependent. All the promises that God gave Abraham in Genesis 12 were dependent on that, and they hit trial after trial after trial. And this is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. This morning we want to consider three things as we look at this passage. First, we want to consider God's call and promise. And second, we want to consider Abraham's response of faith. And finally, the object and source of faith. Well, notice there in verse 8 that the writer has now introduced Abraham. Abraham is going to take up an enormous chunk of Hebrews chapter 11, more more focus on Abraham than any of the other saints we've already talked about or will talk about. And I think that's because the temptation that the Hebrews were, were facing under the severe persecution for their faith in Jesus, they had lost their homes, some of them had been persecuted, and under that severe pressure of faith, they were being tempted to turn from the gospel, they were being tempted to go to Judaism, which would allow them to avoid the persecution, and in that way, they could still be religious, but they didn't have to undergo the persecution for the name of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that what the writer here is doing is he's saying, let's talk about the first Jew. Let's talk about the first Israelite. Going back to Judaism would be the wrong thing to do now that Christ has come. Let's talk about the father of Israel, Abraham. And what the writer does very strategically is he says that Abraham was not trusting in sacrificial systems. He was not trusting in external religion as Judaism had become. Abraham walked by faith. He obeyed by faith. He lived by faith. He endured by faith. He went where he didn't know where God was taking him. One old writer said, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going, but he went out knowing who he was going with. Very helpful. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going, but he went out knowing who he was going with. That's what enabled Abraham to obey God's call. And notice that the writer is actually going to tell us a little bit about the call and the promise of God here in verse 8. First, he tells us that Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he would afterward receive as an inheritance. Now, we go back to Genesis 12, and there Abraham is with his father, Terah, and he's with his father's family, and they are moving, they are traveling toward Canaan. Don't miss that. They're traveling toward Canaan. That's the promised land. But they're going there apart from God's call. They're going there to probably find a little plot of land where they could put their roots down and they could shepherd their flocks. And it's interesting 
what Abraham is trying to do is he is trying to take possession of something in which he will find safety and security. He'll be able to put roots down with his father, with his father's family. And the Bible tells us that Abraham and his fathers were idol worshipers. In the book of Joshua, we're told that before God calls him, he was an idolater. This is one of Enoch's descendants. You see how quickly men's hearts turn from God to idols. Abraham, one of Enoch's descendants, we heard about him two weeks ago. Abraham, one of Noah's descendants, in the godly line, had become an idolater with his family. And now Abraham is moving to a land of idolatry. Canaan is the zenith of idolatry in the ancient Near East. It's where all of the wicked practice, sacrificing children to gods like Molech. Um, There is all kinds of abominable practices that God will speak against in the Old Testament. And Abraham and his family are heading there. And they are, in a very real sense, trying to look ahead to the future. And they're thinking, we need to be provided for. We need to take things into our own hands. We need to make sure that our future is secured. And God meets him. By the way, that's at the very end of Genesis 11. He's going to Canaan, and God meets him, and he says, get out from your country, get out of your father's house, leave your family, and go to a land that I will give you. So God's call and his promise are inseparable. Now, Abraham is not going to get the glories of heaven, as we'll hear here, because he obeyed, but if he didn't obey, he wouldn't get it. Obedience is not the grounds of why God was going to give him glory, but if he didn't respond to God's call, he wouldn't get it. And the same is true for us. God asks Abraham to do one of the hardest things anybody is ever asked to do. There's almost no bond so strong as family. God is asking Abraham to give up the thing that is most dear and precious to his heart. You see this. You see how difficult this is when people convert to Christianity in other countries where the family unit is strong and where idolatry is strong in the family unit and you see how hated even by their own family they are when they choose Christ over family. God is saying essentially, and he's saying to all of us, there can be nothing in your heart that you treasure more than him. There can be nothing in your heart that you love more than him. If you care more about the success of your children in the world then wanting them to know Jesus Christ, you have an idol. If you you cannot bear the thought, even hypothetically, of being called away from your family to serve Jesus Christ and follow him, then your family is more important to you than Jesus Christ. Abraham is enormously instructive to us because God's call is, get out, come away. Now, it's interesting, what God is doing with Abraham uh, is kind of paralleled with what he did with Enoch and Noah. You have to listen very carefully. With Noah, God took Noah out of the, or with Enoch, God took Enoch out of the world. We saw that two weeks ago. Took Enoch out of the world. He was not. Bodily transportation to heaven. With Noah, God destroyed the wicked world and left Noah in the world to repopulate it. With Abraham, God separates him from the world. That becomes the paradigm for the rest of redemptive history. Abraham becomes paradigmatic for you and me. When you read about Jesus in the Gospels and he is walking in Galilee and he calls his disciples, he says, follow me. And they leave their nets 
and they leave their father's fishing businesses, and they follow Jesus. It is the same Lord calling his people in the same way that he called Abraham. The call of God from this point on, and including and especially with regard to our lives, is follow me, come away from everything that you have set your heart on more than me, follow me, and I am going to bless you and give you blessings beyond your wildest imagination. Now here's where the call and the promise work together, and you have to listen carefully. Where's Abraham heading? He's going to Canaan. He's trying in human strength to lay hold of security and satisfaction. He may get a little piece of land. Maybe he'll get a couple acres. Maybe he'll get a couple hundred acres. But it's not going to be all of Canaan. He's only going to get a portion if he even gets any. And he's still going to have all the trials and the difficulties of of all of the idolatry and the pagan worship and the warfare of Canaan with all those nations that we read about later. He's going to have all the difficulties and he's only going to get a little bit of land if he goes there with his father. And God says, come out, come away, and I'm going to give you the world. I'm not just going to give you Canaan. I'm going to give you the world. Turn to Romans 4, 13. It's on page 941, Romans 4, 13. Notice this. The Apostle Paul tells us, the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that's us, that he would be heir of the world. So Canaan is too small. The promised land is too small. If you are the kind of person that thinks it's all about the promised land, physical Israel, you are vastly measuring it too small. God's promise is the world. Abraham would have gotten a couple acres. God says, I'm going to give you the world. If by human strength, you are going to have a a weak, frail, feeble, fleeting realization of life, possessions in life, experiences in life, and joy in life. But if it's by God's promise, he is going to superabound anything that you could ever imagine in this world. God says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a blessing. Other nations are going to be blessed in you. I'm not only going to give you Canaan, I'm going to give you everything because I'm going to give you the Redeemer. He's going to come from you and he's going to bless the world through his death and resurrection. That's that's what's happening with the promise of God in Genesis. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. And so I think it's important for us to understand as we go through life as believers, as those who have professed faith in Jesus, that we have that same mindset. Number one, that God has called us out He calls us away from whatever it is that holds our hearts here. And he calls us to follow him and to trust him and to look for his redemption and his promise of the inheritance of all things. Jesus himself said, the meek shall inherit the land of Israel. No, the meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus says, you are to to believe and trust the promises of God And the only way you can become that third category of person so that you're not just somebody frustrated by trying in your own effort to make things happen and trying to secure the future and trying to position yourself and so you don't have the futile life of just drifting along, floating as if you don't care about anything, is to know the God who is called, to believe, to come out, to follow him, to trust him, and to know that he who promised is faithful and that he has something vastly better than you could ever imagine. Vastly. Now, here's the challenge. What God had for Abraham was not realized in his life. 
Um, the false teachers who tell you it's about God's blessing for you here and now, they are giving people um, smoke. It's nothing. It's not what God has said. God gave Abraham enormous privileges and promises, and Abraham didn't get anything in the land of promise except a burial ground for himself and his wife, his children, and his grandchildren. That's all he got. He never got Canaan. But what Abraham got, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us, is that he gets a city whose foundation, whose builder and maker is God. That Abraham inherited something vastly better than what he was going after. And Abraham persevered through all the difficulties. And notice the writer says, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, he went out not knowing where he was going. The essence of faith is not having all the answers so that now I can believe. If you're that kind of person, I need all the rationale behind why I should believe, then you will never understand what saving faith, which is a gift from God, is and what it means to live by faith. Abraham did not know where he was going. In fact, all that Abraham encountered was difficulty. He lived in a tent. He had nowhere to lay his head. He moved from place to place. He was chased here and there. He had to pass through areas of the land where there were kings who he was afraid would take his wife. At every corner, Abraham was threatened, as it were, that the promises of God would not come true. And yet God had promised and Abraham believed God and he went out not knowing where God had called him to go. That... That is what saving faith looks like. That's what it means to live by faith and obedience to God, obedience produced by that faith, trusting that God who has spoken is faithful. Notice that when he tells us about Sarah, notice this in verse 11, he says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Here's, here's the amazing thing. Abraham lived in a time when idolatry was rampant. There were all kinds of gods in the ancient Near East that men had made up. There were all kinds of religions that men had invented. And Yahweh, the true and the living God, appeared to Abraham and spoke to him. And Abraham believed that he was God, that he had made him, that he was faithful that what God had said was true, and he acted by faith in the word and the promises of God. And let me say this, that, sadly, is not enough for most people in this world. It's why most people in this world reject Jesus Christ ultimately. It's why most people in this world will never obey the call of God and will never go out by faith, not knowing where they're going, and trust him. And yet Abraham did it, Abraham did it at a time when, when no one else was doing it. I think we've seen that with the others that we've looked at here. I want to read a quote to you by Martin Lloyd-Jones, speaking about Abraham's relationship to God, the God who has spoken to him, how Abraham viewed him and understood him. Abraham understood that God knew him. That was the secret to Abraham. He understood that God knew him. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Though he made everything out of nothing and he plays with the constellations as a child with marbles, nevertheless, he knows you. 
The God who is infinite in his greatness and grandeur and power. The God who is measured only by himself. The God of which there is no being greater. Who plays with the constellations as a child with marbles knows his people. And notice what the writer of Hebrews tells us. This is beautiful. In verse 16, they desire a better country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. The true and living God is not ashamed to be called the God of his people. And if you've ever thought about this, there's every reason why God should be ashamed to be called the God of idolaters and sinners like us. There's nothing in you. There's nothing in me by which God should be proud to be called our God. Nothing. And yet the writer of Hebrews says is when we live by faith, when we respond as Abraham did, God is not ashamed to be called your God. God has prepared a city for you. God has known you. Listen, it was not, it was not in determination to obey. It was not in determination to obey that Abraham obeyed and lived as a pilgrim and a stranger in the land of promise. He, Abraham didn't muster up enough willpower to say, I will obey and do this. It was by faith in the God of promise. It was by faith in the God of promise. The obedience that Abraham demonstrated was an outworking of the faith that he had in the word and the promises of God. And so it will be for you. If you are a person who wants to grow in holiness, who wants to grow in obedience, who wants to be made Christ-like, it's not going to come from you wanting to be made Christ-like. It's going to come from you knowing you need a Savior and looking to him in faith and resting in who God is and what he has promised. And that means when everything comes in to challenge that and the thousand voices tell you that Christianity is wrong and the thousand voices come in because Satan has thousands of voices that he works through and, and those voices come in to say, what about this? What about this? What about this? The Bible says, by faith, when he was called, he obeyed, he went out not knowing where he was going, he dwelt in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise with him. And that's what it means to be the third category of person that we've talked about. Now notice, notice that the emphasis here is on them dwelling in a foreign land in tents with Isaac and Jacob. I think it's interesting that there's a theme in the Bible and that theme is uh, that God's people are everywhere pilgrims and strangers in the earth. That our lives are just mere pilgrimages. They're just sojournings, wanderings, just like Abraham. And he becomes the model of that. Physically, literally, moving around, tent, pitching his tent here and there. That we are strangers and foreigners here. That we know this is not our home. Um, C.S. Lewis said in one of his more famous statements, um, aim for heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim for earth and you get nothing. Aim for heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim for earth, you get nothing. And I think that it's interesting that what we see in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even in the fact of their pitching their tents in a land that God said, I'm going to give you, and they, they were content to move around in tents, is that in their minds, what was going on was they knew God said it was going to be higher and better and bigger and greater, and they were content to move from place to place because even in pitching their tents, they were showing that they knew they belonged to a heavenly city. I want to read a quote to you from uh, my favorite theologian, Gerhardus Voss. Um, he says, only 
the predestined inhabitants of the eternal city know how to conduct themselves in a simple tent as kings and princes of God. I've read that before. Only the predestined inhabitants of the eternal city know how to conduct themselves in a simple tent as kings and princes of God. And here's what's amazing. You know who else knew how to conduct himself as a stranger and a foreigner on the earth? The Lord Jesus Christ did. He left the glories of heaven. He was exiled from heaven. He's the one that said he had nowhere to lay his head. He moved around the same land that Abraham found himself in pitching tents. He moved from place to place and city to city. He was the ultimate sojourner on the earth. And he did that until he was exiled at the cross so that you might receive the promises of God. And so even what Abraham is doing, he is pointing beyond himself to the Redeemer who's going to do that in the fullest and the truest sense so that when you look to him by faith, when you look at Jesus Christ and you see that he has fulfilled the promises God gave to Abraham and that in his exile at the cross and being cast away from God's presence, sent out into the no man's land of God's wrath, into the far country as a sojourner, cast out of the presence of the glory of God, The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, hanging on the cross, is establishing for you the reality. And he's securing for you the promises that you keep your focus fixed on because of what he did. And so we also, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Sarah, we learn learn to respond to God's call and promise through faith, and we, we... We learn to be content. We learn to be content with hardship and difficulty. I was thinking about the Apostle Paul. I'm not sure I'm right in saying this, but in a sense, the Apostle Paul is sort of a a new covenant Abraham. He moves not in the land of promise, but all through the world, proclaiming the gospel. He's a tent maker. He's living in tents. He doesn't have his own place. We find him with a rented house at the end of the book of Romans. And I think that what even that shows in the life and ministry of Paul is that new covenant believers are called to the exact same life as Abraham was called to. To go where God wants to go with them. And they go because they know that God is with them. And so when they hit the difficulties and the trials, they don't give up. You know, in every case, I really believe this, in every case in which someone makes a profession of faith in Jesus and then they turn from him and the writer here says, If they had thought of the land out of which they came back, they could have gone back there. Remember Lot's wife? She went back. In every case in which somebody who makes a profession of faith in Jesus and turns back to the world, I'm convinced they hit the trials, they hit the difficulties. They think God is not faithful. God is not doing what he promised to do. And so they disbelieve. They act in wicked unbelief and they depart from God. But the person who has faith in God sees the hardship, doesn't question God. No, it's amazing that as we look now at the object and, and source of our faith, that it really isn't the promises of God. Now, you've got to listen carefully because it's very common, even in Reformed churches, to say you've got to hold on to the promises of God. And you do. You do. But more than that, It's holding on to the God of promise. It's holding on to the God of promise. Notice what the writer says here about Sarah. It's really amazing. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. 
Now, if we go back to Genesis, the really remarkable thing is that if you read the Genesis account from 12 to 21, Genesis 12 to 21, and then you read the Hebrews account, you're like, are we talking about the same person? Because in Genesis, Abraham's sleeping with his wife's handmaiden to try to fulfill the promise in his own strength. He's handing his wife over to foreign kings, lying and saying she's my sister and giving up his wife to kings so that he doesn't die. And Sarah is laughing at God's promises. Am I going to have a son at 90? Yeah, right. And that's the Genesis account. And then we come to Hebrews and it's like, by faith, she got power to conceive in her old age. And you have to say, what's going on? Why in Genesis does it seem like they're faltering everywhere? And Hebrews is like, by faith, they overcame. They triumphed because they did. Because as they hit the trials and the challenges, there were times where they wavered. Their faith was not a perfect faith. They hit the hardships. When Sarah considered the promise that God's going to give me a son at 90, and she considered the science of that, And she realized the attendant obstacles to that. Am I and my husband going to have a child now? Really? She laughed. She thought that was foolish. But when she took her focus off of the promise, if I can say that carefully, she took her focus off of the promise and she she put her focus away from the difficulties that she knew were facing the fulfillment of that promise. And the writer of Hebrews said, she counted him faithful who had promised. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, you can face any challenge as you continue to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, as you make your sojourning, as you go from strength to strength, and you're on your pilgrimage to Zion, you can face the challenges and the obstacles and the hardships and the difficulties only and ever if you count him who promised faithful. And then you can say, you know what? I don't know why God has brought these events in my life but you stop trying to position yourself to avoid them. Remember the first person. And you don't respond to them by saying, well, I'll just go with it. You continue trusting him who promised as faithful. And here's the heart of Christianity. We believe, we believe in an invisible God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That that saving faith is trusting in and then walking obediently to the word and call and promise of an invisible God. That's what we do. Now let me say this. We have more than Abraham had because we get to look back and see the invisible God manifested in the flesh in Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And we get to see the fulfillment of those rich promises to Abraham. And we are examples of the fulfillment of that. We are the nations being blessed in the seed of Abraham. And we actually get to see the promises to Abraham and their consummation expansion as they move toward the day when we will be glorified together with them because of what Jesus Christ has done at the cross. And so when your faith starts to waver and you wonder, how do I keep going? How do I live in tents? How do I go around? Abraham was functionally living as a homeless missionary. How can I be like that? That doesn't mean you leave Richmond Hill. 
That doesn't mean you have to go in a foreign mission field. How am, is my will resigned to God's will? How do I live by faith in, in pressing on in my pilgrimage wherever he places me? And when you start to waver, you look at the one who was pierced for your transgressions, who was wounded for your iniquities, the pilgrim and the sojourner of pilgrims and sojourners who took your sin on himself at the cross so that you one day will be blessed with Abraham. You know, this is the remarkable thing about scripture is that it ties all of this together. And when you read in the Gospels, Jesus will often say things, often talk about heaven as sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. And that's how he describes heaven. And what the writer of Hebrews says here is that they were not made perfect apart from us. That yes, they're there in glory with the Lord Jesus Christ now. They, they finished their pilgrimage. But everything has not yet been accomplished. The bodily resurrection has not occurred. Abraham's bones are somewhere on this planet. They have not yet been raised up. And what Jesus tells us is that that Abraham was looking forward to the resurrection, even in, in the burial that he did in the land of Canaan. He was trusting that one day God would raise him up and one day God will raise us up with him because God has raised his son Jesus Christ up. And that, that is the source and the object of our faith. He, Jesus Christ, is the source and the object of our faith. It's interesting that this chapter ends, moving into chapter 12, by saying, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That he did and went through everything that Abraham went through, and so much more so that he might bring Abraham and you to himself in glory. Now, one simple application. We are called to be pilgrims and sojourners here. Whatever you do, whatever calling you have, I think the military has it easier in understanding that a bit. I've lived in 30 houses in 35 years. I think people that move around get that experientially a little bit more. But all of us are called to be pilgrims and sojourners in the earth, to trust the God who is faithful. And as you go through challenges in life, as you go through trials and difficulties, that you don't, you don't get hung up and snared by looking at the obstacles, but you get strengthened by looking at the God who is promised. That's what Sarah did. That's what Abraham did. That's what you and I are to do by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, going to him for strength in your pilgrimage. There's a great verse in... Um, Psalm 84, I'll just read it to us as we close. Psalm 84, verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The early rain covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. We are on a highway to Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. 
Know that the God who knows you and is not ashamed to be called your God will fulfill his promises. That's the surest way that you will appear before God in Zion. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we, we need to be strengthened in the truth of these things. We need to be strengthened in your son, Jesus Christ. We are weak. We often find our faith wavering as Abraham's and, and Sarah's did at time. And yet we want to be like them, oh God. We want to imitate them and we want to know the same source of faith that they had, and we want our lives to reflect that we are a people who believe. And so we ask that you would fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've done everything for us, that you have sojourned here and been exiled at the cross, that we might be brought home to glory. Make our hearts to long for that. Make us to go from strength to strength and make us eager to appear before you in Zion. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.